We are in 1 John 4, 13 through 21. Let's open up there and let's read the word. Starting with verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In this commandment, we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Hmm. So this morning, John continues in the theme of what it means to love God, to love others, and to abide in him. We had the privilege of hearing Pastor Keith preach last week, seeing what it meant to have love from God. We know that John said, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And so we see the connection of loving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is directly connected to loving the Father who is unseen. John will continue to expand on this theme this morning, as well as ask us a vital question. He asks us, do we abide in him? And thankfully, by his grace, he shows us this morning how we can know and how we can have the assurance that we truly do abide in him. So my question for you this morning is, where do you abide? Now, when I say abide, it's not a term we use every day, but synonyms could be, where do you live? Where do you dwell? Where do you remain? So, where do you abide? I'm not referring to your physical, where your physical house is located or what kind of living arrangements you have. What I'm asking is more important than simply where you sleep and where you eat dinner. When I ask, where do you abide, I'm asking, where do you choose to invest yourself? Where do you choose to stick, stay, remain? This includes your time, thoughts, and energy. Do you abide in the past, thinking sentimentally about the good old days and when life was simpler? Do you choose to abide or remain in the future and try to escape to a time when things will be better, whether that be the upcoming weekend or a vacation you look forward to? Do you abide in the news or sports or what is going on in the world around us, checking your phone or watching the TV to find out what you think is important? Everyone chooses to abide somewhere, and where you abide will affect your everyday decisions. One person may abide in God, and thus make godly, 
selfless decisions to love, at, to love others at their own expense. Another person may choose to have their identity in being a victim and choose to abide in that. And that will lead to very practical things like retaliation, holding grudges, or even avoiding certain people. Despite the places you may have chosen to abide this week, if you are a Christian, then ultimately you abide in Christ because God has first chosen to abide in you. That is a great praise for us this morning, that although we are inconsistent, if you are a Christian this morning, then you can have the confidence that God abides in you. Thankfully, God's abiding in us is not scattered, sinful, or inconsistent like us, but is an act of his irresistible grace, which he chooses to impart to all who repent and believe. God abides in us so that we may abide in him. Unfortunately, as someone who knows my own thoughts and my own actions very well, I know that I do not functionally choose to abide in God as much as, I, as much as I ought. My days are mixed with praise and pride, joy and jealousy, worship and worry. How can a sinner such as I have the confidence to know that God is indeed abiding in me and I in him? On the surface, any of us can make it appear as though we're abiding in God. Spend enough time around church people, and you'll pick up the lingo pretty quick. And you make it, you can, anyone can make it look as though they are abiding in God. But the life and death question John has for us this morning is, how do you truly know that God is abiding in you? How do you truly know that God is living, dwelling, and abiding in you? This issue is addressed in verses 13 through 21. And it'll show us the way that we can have assurance to know that God is indeed abiding in us and we are subsequently abiding in God. First, we'll examine the evidence of God's indwelling. Second, we will see the confidence that this produces to face the judgment day. Third, we'll look at and see how this perfect fear, how this perfect love casts out all fear. And last, we will see how this abiding empowers us to love God's people. So four things this morning. It's all a logical progression, so it'll track the passage pretty closely. So first, in verse 13, it says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. The first sign we see in this passage that God is indeed abiding in you is the presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God in your life. That is the first sign we see here that God is inviting in you, that you have the Holy Spirit. While I doubt that anyone in here would deny the fact that the presence of the Spirit is not vital to abiding in God, the two go hand in hand, although you wouldn't deny that fact intellectually, most likely, what we do need to examine more closely is what this practically and biblically looks like to have the indwelling of the Spirit. How do we know? This point is a sermon, book, or an entire conference in and of itself. As you may know that this question of what is the, what is the, light, what is the spirit in someone look like and how does that manifest, manifest itself in a Christian, some of you may know that that is a hotly debated topic, topic in circles today. 
How do we know that it is the work of the Spirit that is truly in your life? And how can we differentiate that from some of the strange fire disguising itself as the Holy Spirit? How can we discern the difference? So the point of this sermon is not to discuss the whole realm of pneumatology, and lest I bite off more than I can chew, but I will plan to narrow my focus on the biblical evidence of the Spirit's indwelling directly addressed here in 1 John 4, rather than address every aspect of who the Holy Spirit is and what he can do. So we're not going to try to study the, the whole picture this morning. If you have an interest in that, then you can talk to me or one of the, uh, the other pastors after church, and we can recommend some great books or studies you can do on the Holy Spirit. But this morning, my focus will be on how we see the Spirit abiding and what that looks like as seen in 1 John 4. So, the first evidence that we see of the Spirit's indwelling, which comes after verse 13, it says in verse 14 and 15, after the Spirit indwells us, it says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So the immediate context of this passage we see that once the Spirit fills, it causes us to confess that Jesus is Savior of the world and Jesus is the Son of God. Or, in a way to put it short, the Spirit testifies that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. You might be thinking, well, Kurt, that doesn't sound all that miraculous. Isn't the Holy Spirit supposed to do supernatural feats like rush onto Samson so that he can kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey? Isn't the Holy Spirit supposed to do miraculous things like equip David to defeat Goliath or to fall upon the believers at Pentecost? Yes, the Holy Spirit was active in those things and he is even more powerful today than you or I can imagine. But may I submit to you that the most miraculous, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit is not necessarily what the world sees as powerful, not necessarily what the world sees as important. Remember, remember that God says that His power is made perfect in weakness. I submit to you that we see in this passage that the, the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin and to testify to the truthfulness of Christ, that he is both Lord and Savior. Consider this, to take a sinner who is completely spiritually dead and a slave to sin, and to breathe new life into his or her heart and change their heart from stone to flesh, a heart that no longer worships self, but then worships God, that is a miraculous, supernatural feat. In a world that hates to submit to authority, doesn't believe in God, and is filled with pride, anyone who says, soberly, I know I am guilty of, guilty of breaking God's laws. I know that I'm in need of a savior. That's a statistical anomaly. So, that the, so the results of that are the miraculous work of the Spirit. In the 15th chapter of John's Gospel, we read of this primary role. Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will bear witness about himself. 
Therefore, when we not only say with our lips, but consistently testify with our lives that Jesus is Lord and Savior and worship him as such, we can have the assurance that God is dwelling in us because of the priceless gift of the Holy Spirit. So for anyone to truly and soberly confess that Jesus is both Lord and Savior, that is a miraculous work of the Spirit in your life. So ask yourself this morning, when you're, when you're testing yourself to see if you have, can have this assurance, does the Holy Spirit cause me to submit to the Lordship of Christ and His law, especially when it's inconvenient for me to do so? Do I submit to God's word and the lordship of Christ, even when it's inconvenient. Maybe when taking a stand against uh, a family member or a boss when they want you to compromise the truth. Do you submit then? Also ask yourself, does the Holy Spirit convict me of sin and cause me to regularly fall on my knees in repentance and plead for Christ as my only Savior? Does the Holy Spirit show me and point to the Savior? Maybe this happens when you know you sinned and went back to an old habit that you thought was behind you. In that moment, does the Spirit bring you conviction and point to the Savior? These are just a few examples. As you can see, it is one thing to say as a good Christian, oh, I believe Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's another to functionally live out that truth day by day, especially when faced with difficult circumstances. It is utterly impossible to do these things without the indwelling of the Spirit. It is utterly impossible for anyone to, con- to truly confess their sin, to see Christ as Savior and turn to Him without the working and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we see that the Spirit's role here in 1 John is to testify to who Christ is. The next mark of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is seen in verse 16 of 1 John 4. It says... So we have come to know and to believe the love that that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. In addition to the Spirit's role of testifying to who Christ is, he also enables us to abide in love. What I want you to note is that the word abide in English gives us an understanding that it is, this love doesn't just come and go out of a believer's life. Even clearer in the Greek, the root word for abide is meno, which means to remain, stay, or wait. So the Holy Spirit, who is called our guarantee or our seal in Ephesians 1, gives us the power to stay, remain, and abide in the love of God, even when the last thing we feel like doing in that moment is to love. I remember when Pastor Keith preached at my wedding, and he told my wife Yasmin and I that although you stand here looking lovely today, there will be times when you are not so lovely. But the vows that you make with each other are to abide in love, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Now that is the covenant we made in marriage, and and it's by the Holy Spirit that we are able to abide in that love. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us as Christians to abide in that love for one another when times get tough, when someone wrongs you, when someone is not easy to love or not very lovely. Do you continue to persistently abide in love and continue in that? Or do you find yourself fleeing? 
do you find yourself getting impatient quickly and giving up on loving someone? Marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And as a church, we are called to remain faithful to Christ and remain or abide in him. Unfortunately, this is not always the case. Those in, we see, if we remember in 1 John chapter 2, we see that there are some people that went out, John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. Those people did not have the Holy Spirit, and therefore were not able to abide in love, but abandoned love for their own sake. And if it were up to us, we would fall away like the disciples did when Jesus went to the cross. But fortunately, the same Holy Spirit that changed Peter's character from cowardly to courageous also gives us the power to abide in love, even to the point of death. So the assurance we can have that we are truly abiding in God is most clearly seen in the Spirit's work of revealing Christ and sealing us permanently in the love of God. The work, the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, it gives us the perseverance to continue to love even in the hard times. So, how can we know that we are abiding in God? How can we have this blessed assurance? It is if you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is clearly seen in changing stone hearts to flesh, to causing a flaky, disobedient, impatient people to become patient and long-suffering with one another. We can only do that by the work of the Spirit. So, now that I've mentioned that up... Now, what I've mentioned up to this point is why it is so important for us to have the assurance. Sorry, let me reword that. I misread. Up to this point, I have said that it is important that we have the assurance of knowing that we are abiding in God. But I have not explained why it is so important that we have that assurance. If you are listening to me as an unbeliever or a skeptic, you might even be asking, why should I care if I abide in God or not? This leads us to our next point about the confidence we need in order to face the day of judgment. Verses, verse 17 of 1 John 4 says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, also are we in this world. We now see in context that having the assurance that we are truly abiding in God is the most important thing we can have. Because the consequences of not abiding in him are potentially eternally catastrophic. It is so important that you and I know and can have that assurance that we are truly abiding in God. Because the consequences of not are catastrophic. It is a principle in life that the more drastic the consequences are for something, the more it needs to be tested to make sure that that doesn't happen. For example, airplanes go through extreme testing and safety procedures because of the consequences, because the consequences of failure are drastic, aren't they? Because Yasmin and I heard that 75% of baby car seats are not installed properly, we had our car seat checked 
because of the consequences of having our baby girl get injured in a car accident were drastic. Following in this principle that the more drastic the consequences, the more something needs to be tested. So the fact that John keeps giving us tests in this epistle is not because he wants to be a killjoy, but because he deeply cares for the church and wants to rescue us from the flames of hell if we are not in Christ, or give us a deep, tested confidence in Christ if we truly are in him. So because the stakes are so high, it is right and good for John to continue to call us to examine ourselves and continue to seek the assurance of having salvation. Because the stakes are eternity, whether in heaven or in hell. And this will be faced on Judgment Day. It, verse 17 tells us that we can have confidence for the Day of Judgment if we have love perfected with us and if we are as Christ is in the world. So two things it says that how we can have confidence for the Day of Judgment. If we have love perfected with us and we are as Christ is in the world. On the surface, both those things seem impossible. How can I have love perfected in me? Also, I am nothing like Christ in this world. I am sinful. I do not worship God as perfectly as Christ did. So how can I have this assurance for the judgment day? Let's examine what the beloved apostle means by these two points and look a little bit under the surface to see how we can truly have that assurance. So, does having love perfected with us, here in verse 17, does that mean that we as Christians abiding in God will always love perfectly? I hope not, because if that were the case, none of us would be Christians. None of us could have assurance. The word here for perfected is also used elsewhere in the New Testament. So thankfully, on that surface level, shallow understanding of the word, yes, we would, none of us would be Christian, but thankfully, that is not what John means. There is a deeper, better understanding of what it means to have love perfected with us. We see that meaning coming out when we look at what perfected, that word perfected in the New Testament means elsewhere in Scripture. We see that it also can mean completed, accomplished, or finished. Those are other ways that this word perfected has been used. For example, in James 2.22, it says, You see that faith was active along with works, and faith was completed by his works, or perfected by his works. That word completed is the same word used for perfected. So in James 2.22, how does works, how do works complete faith? Not by making a, a person's faith flawless, but by making a person's faith active and, and not just active, but also tangible. So what God means by saying that this love is perfected with us is not that we will love flawlessly, but that God's love will be completed or put into action through us. How then does this love perfected with us give us confidence for the day of judgment? How does having love in action through us, how can that give us confidence for facing the day of judgment, whether it's when we die or whether Christ comes back? Think about it. 
The only way to validate the character of a person is by their actions. The only way to validate who, who they are is by what they show themselves to be. Someone can say all they want, that they are trustworthy, that they are responsible, but until they prove it, we won't trust them with our firstborn, will we? But if we have observed that a person's actions are indeed trustworthy, then we can put our confidence in them. In the same way, when we not only say that we love God or have faith in him, but show observable evidence of it, we grow in confidence that our saving faith is legitimate. When we, just the same way when we look at a person's character and they've shown data points that they are consistent, that they are reliable, that we can verify and have confidence in that person, Paul, when he says that our our love is perfected with us, he wants us and our love also to be demonstrated, to be put into action so that we can face the day of judgment and say, look, I can point to the good fruit in my life and see that my love is real, that it's not just in my head, that my faith isn't dead without works, but it actually has works to back it up. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that it is by works of the flesh that we can have confidence that God will abide in us. I'm not saying that, um, I'm not saying that, that it's, that, oh, just check out your works, and if you've been a good person, or if you've read your Bible or done this or that, then you can have assurance. I'm not saying that. What I am saying And what John is saying is that by having love perfected with us is that our spirit-empowered love only gives us confidence when it is put into action or when it's observable. The same way our confidence in a person's character is perfected when they show themselves to be trustworthy. The same way that you would not fly a plane that you went put through some testing and saw it was defective you cannot have a confidence in a person if they have, you can, it's hard to have confidence in yourself if you've never been tested, if you've never actually put that into practice. That is the way we obtain confidence, through testing and through showing and putting into action the love that God has for us and we have for others. So the first way we can have confidence to face God's judgment is to show observable, observable evidence that we are abiding in Him. The second way we can have confidence is we see in verse 17, being as he is. Who is the he John is referring to? It's Christ. John says that as Christ is, so also are we in this world. In what ways does John mean that we, you and I, are like Christ? The two clues that tell us are found in the immediate context of judgment and in a parallel passage we saw a few chapters before. First, in the immediate context of this verse, we are like Christ in the sense that when we stand before God in judgment, we will be completely righteous as he is. In the same way that God said to Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, because we abide in God and are his children, he can make that same pronouncement upon us. And we can be accepted as Christ is, which gives us great confidence when we face God. That we can know that we can come to him not as guilty criminals, but as an adopted son or an adopted daughter. What more confidence would you want in facing the day of judgment? Knowing that you are as Christ is, that the same way Christ, God has said to Christ, this is my son who I'm well pleased, he can say that to you. That would give me great confidence to face the day of judgment. In, chap- in 1 John chapter 2, 28, 
it also confirms. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Because Christ, the sinless one, went to the cross and endured the wrath of God for all who would repent and believe, we can now have the confidence of knowing that the penalty of our past, present, and future sins have been paid in full. And on that day of judgment, our record will not only be spotless, but perfectly righteous, because Christ imputed his righteousness to us. So now since we abide in Christ, and his love is perfected in us, then we are as he is in this world. That is, we are God's children and recipients of God's favor. No, we are not as Christ is in this world in the fact that we can't walk on water. No, we are not as Christ is as he was in this world in that he was completely sinless, because none of us are. We heard earlier in First John that we, no one can claim to be completely sinless. But we are like Christ was in this world when we are also co-heirs, when we are sons and daughters, and when we can face the judgment knowing that we don't have to shrink back from his coming, but we can embrace God and know that we are adopted by him because of the work Christ has done for us. So the things which give us confidence for the, fa- for the day of judgment will not only change the way we approach the judgment day, but will also change the way we face every moment before that day as well. Specifically, we see in this passage how it will cast out fear and empower us to love God's people. Verse 18 in 1 John 4 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. One implication of abiding in God and being a beloved child as Christ is, is that all fear of punishment will be cast away. God as our Father is not duplicitous in his love. Once he chooses to save us, there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from his love. Because there is an inverse relationship between love and fear, it's like oil and water, we know that where one exists, the other cannot. This is an amazing truth, because it means that on our worst days, when we sin, when we fail, when we mess everything up, we can have the confidence that God will not cast us out or give up on us. Because Christ was punished on the cross for our sins, we don't have to fear because fear has to do with punishment. We don't have to fear because we are no longer enemies of God, but beloved children, exempt from God's punishment and condemnation. God is just, and he does not make sin be paid for twice. It was paid for once and and for all by Christ, and so we do not have to bear that wrath anymore. We don't have to be punished we can have the assurance of knowing that he has, he has forgiven us. And therefore, we don't have to shrink back, but we can embrace him in love. It will cast out all fear, knowing that we can approach the Father in that way. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
So instead of a fear, it's affection that we can show for God. What an amazing promise. What an amazing gift that rebels such as you and I, people who have spurned God's name, that have sinned against him, that instead of being wanted convicts that are on the, on the loose, trying to run from him, we can rush to him, knowing that it is there that he will clean us off and embrace us and transform us and make us into his own people. Oftentimes when we share the gospel, it's like shining the spotlight on someone who, is, who has been running from the law. Now, if they are a truly a criminal in that moment, meaning that God hasn't been working on them and their heart isn't softened, then they will hear the word and they will run from it. Most of our evangelism will get that response. People will know that they're guilty sinners and they will hate to hear the word. But by God's grace, those sheep whom he is calling into his own fold, when, they, when the light is shined on them, instead of being blinded by it, they will want to run to the light. They will be thankful that the light has been shown on them and they will be grateful for it. So, while there is no punishment in God anymore because of the work of Christ, let me be clear that we should still fear God. God is still holy. We are not to diminish his holiness. We are to still worship him in awe and reverence and see him how he is. We are not to flatten him into a two-dimensional character or think that all he is is all he is is love. We, we describe that when it says God is love, that doesn't mean that that is all he is. But that is the expression of who he is. So while he does not punish us, he still disciplines us because he is holy. He does care about our actions and he does care that we worship him rightly. While God has, has done away with punishment... He disciplines us because he loves us. The difference between discipline is that we don't have to fear at all because we know that if we are in him, his discipline is for our ultimate good and it is for our righteousness. We see in Hebrews 12:11 it says, "For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant." But later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The end goal of discipline is righteousness. Whereas punishment is meant to be afflicted for the sake of justice. If you have the assurance that you abide in God and he in you. Then you can walk through life as an insider. Understanding that his plan for you is to conform you into the image of Christ through trials and suffering. So when you get laid off from your job, so when a family member dies, so when hard things like that come into your life, you do not, if you know and have the assurance that you're abiding in Christ, you don't have to say, oh, is God punishing me now? But you can take those things head on, knowing that those trials are coming your way because he loves you. It may not be discipline. It may be his way to simply grow you. But maybe he is conforming you and showing you aspects of your sinful nature that he wants you to put to death. And it is through those trials that he will do so. But we know that we can face those with confidence and joy and peace, knowing that discipline 
leads to righteousness and is for our good. Because we believe in a providential God, we know that nothing that takes place is outside of his sovereign decree. And therefore, we not only never have to fear God, but we never have to fear the future either. Because it is the same God who knows every detail of the future. And is working it out for the good of those who love him and and who are called according to his purpose. So, in a Christian's life, there never has to be any worrisome, anxious fear anymore. That That is great news for us this morning. To believe that and to know and trust that God no longer has punishment for us, but also that God is orchestrating the future and he sees the end. And he is in the details as well. That should give us great peace. The first time this really sunk into me was in college when I was driving to an eye appointment and I got lost. Normally when I get lost, I freak out. I get extremely anxious. And what didn't help was that it made me 30 minutes late, which made me freak out even more. So here I am, this ball of stress, trying to find my way to the eye doctor's office when this doctrine hit me square in the face. If I truly believe God is in every detail, then I don't need to fear being late to this appointment. Yes, I am responsible for my wrong turn and for being late, but I haven't all of a sudden stepped outside of God's radar. I'm not magically outside of his will. I am actually in it, and he he was working it out for my good. Now, I wish I could tell you that by running 30 minutes late, it was perfect because I avoided a car accident that I would have normally gotten into, or because I was 30 minutes late, God worked it out that I could help an old lady cross the road. But that wasn't the case. I was just late. But you know what? My understanding of who God is took away the fear about what the optometrist would think of me. And he gave me a peace that transcended all understanding that he was in control, even of the small details, and I wasn't. The confidence we have in perfect love and sovereignty of God is not only what, is not only what casts out fear, but also enables us to take wise risks for the kingdom and love others that are unlike us for the sake of the gospel. So not only does trusting in God's perfect love and his sovereignty over all things, not only does that give us a confidence to not fear punishment, but it also gives us the confidence to love others as well. This leads me to my final point. When we abide in God and are filled with his perfect love, that is when we are given the power to love his people. Unfortunately, though, It is fear that keeps us from loving others. Most cases of racism, classism, or sexism stem from a fear of what is foreign to us and what makes us uncomfortable. In our pride, we often think that our ways are the normal or best ways to live, which automatically forces us to condemn, or, sorry, which automatically forces us to commend those who are like us and vilify those who are not like us. You see, the problem that, with that is that we all have different likes, different dislikes, different upbringings, different goals, different languages, different foods, and we all think that we, our way is the normal way. 
If we do so, then that automatically forces us to consider others strange, weird, or not normal in one way or the other. This is a problem because we are commanded in verse 21 to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And it just so happens that the body of Christ is, is comprised of people of every tribe and tongue. And here in San Jose, we get the privilege to get a very diverse slice of that. So how do we do it? How can we love people who are so unlike us in so many ways? The simple answer is found in verse 19. It is a verse that many of us have memorized. It says, We love because he first loved us. If you think the difference between yourself and another culture is strange, imagine the difference between creator and creation. If you think that in some ways, if you think about it, the difference between creator and creation in some ways is a lot more drastic than creation of of itself. So in some ways, we are a lot more like trees than we are the eternal, immutable creator who has always been and who always will be. So who are we to look around to others and say, oh, you're different, I'm scared, of, or have the fear of not loving someone because they're different than us? More than just the difference of molecular structure, God, who is wholly different than us, in that he has never known sin. Sin is the violating of God's perfect law and the belittling of his name. Every single person alive is guilty of sin and has therefore separated himself from God. But instead of leaving us to die in our sin, God sent his beloved son, Jesus, to enter into human history as a man, as a human, and live amongst sinners so that he could do the work of restoring the relationship that we broke. So however unlike we are from this immutable creator, God didn't leave it that way. God didn't say, oh, these people are different, so I'm not going to love them. God condescended. He broke that chasm and broke into human history and came to rescue us out of love. For all who repent and trust in the Savior, that relationship can be restored and that barrier be broken down between God and man. Amen. And it is because he first loved us who were unlike him that we are able to love other people who are unlike us in trivial ways. I say trivial because the reality is that a young black American Christian has more in common with a Christian who is an elderly Asian woman, they have more in common than do two white country club members from Texas. Maybe not in the quantity of things they can talk about, but in the quality of their conversation, any two Christians, despite their background, despite their upbringing, despite where they come from in the world, have infinitely more in common because they have Christ in common. And the, I, I bet you that the quality of that conversation between any two Christians from opposite cultures, the quality of that will far surpass the vain platitudes expressed between the two gentlemen from that country club. This is because... God is what is most important to life. And God is who is most important to his children. And if we love God, we will naturally have a love for his people. The two go hand in hand. We see the interconnectedness of those 
in verse 20, which says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not, lo- for, for who does, does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The reality is that we are brothers and sisters with all other Christians because we abide in the same Father. And we can extend love to all those who are in God's family because we are securely abiding in Christ's love for us. We can also reach those who are outside of the family of God and invite them in because we were once outside. And it was only by God's grace that any of us have been brought in. So there is no room for boasting. Saints, please ask yourself, do I gravitate towards loving, talking, and spending time with certain people who are most like me? Do I make a concerted effort to love and minister to people who seem to have nothing in common with me by the world's standards? Be very, honor, be very honest with yourself with these questions. My challenge to you is that my challenge to you is to get to know people in this church who are unlike you so that you can demonstrate that your common bond in Christ is so much deeper than anything this world has to offer. If you are abiding in God and he in you, then you will find surprisingly sweet fellowship with those who have nothing in common with you other than Christ himself. So in reality, it's not that you have nothing in common, but you have everything in common. There is much to learn and grow and glean from those experiences with others who come from different backgrounds. As we look this morning at how we can have the assurance that we are abiding in God, we considered the role of the Spirit to cause us to testify to the truth of Christ and confidently face the day of judgment, living until then in a fearless way toward God and man. After examining your heart, if you have the blessed assurance that God is abiding in you, then I encourage you to continue abiding in his love, testifying to Christ as Savior before those who do and do not know him. If you find that this passage doesn't describe you and that you are currently not abiding in Christ, then I plead with you to not waste any more time but to repent of your sin and trust in Christ as your Savior this day so that you may know for the first time what it means to have God's perfect love which casts out all fear. Saints, where do you abide? Where do you abide? By God's grace, The answer for us this morning will be, I abide in him. The spirit is alive and working in me and testifying to who Christ is. Giving me confidence for the the day of judgment and empowering me to love others. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord. For too often we cower in fear. Fear towards others who are unlike us. Fear of man thinking that They will think a certain way of me or they will not like me. Fear of you, Lord. Fear of punishment. When you said, it is finished. When there is no more punishment to be had by those who are in you. God, I pray that your perfect love would cast out all fear. I pray, God, for those who don't know you this morning, who are listening to this sermon. God, that you would bring them conviction. 
and help them see the Savior and that it is only in him whom they can trust for their salvation. Father, for for us who are abiding in him, God, continue to give us this great blessed assurance. I pray that this confidence in you would result in much good fruit from our lives to bring you much glory. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.